Broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of British Columbia. Please ignore, if you heard it, the brief burst burst of punk rock there. That will be from a, another Easily. segment proceeding in a moment. Oh. And we actually have a guest to kick off the show today. This is about a very heavy topic. We have with us on the phone, there is Dave DeVoe from the production My Funny Valentine. Hey, Dave, can you hear us? Yeah, how's it going? Excellent, excellent. How's it going? How's and how's I take it you you guys are just in finals part of Tech Week, yeah? Uh, we're actually just heading into Tech Week because the show has already played in Toronto. So oh really? Uh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, we're based out of Vancouver, but we opened this production in Toronto and are now coming home for a run here. So yeah. And so this show, I take was this show conceived in Vancouver or was it? Um... It was, yeah. So, uh, so we originally started working on the show in 2009, and then the uh, the show premiered in 2011. Uh, we did another production in 2013, and here we are, five years later, uh, doing yet another production of it. So, for those who are unaware of what this uh, this show is about, and it's certainly about some very heavy subject matter, would you mind filling us in? Sure. So, uh, the the play takes inspiration from uh, the 2008 murder of Lawrence King, who was 
a 15-year-old boy in California who asked another boy in his class to be his valentine. And that boy brought in a gun and shot shot and killed Lawrence uh, in front of his entire class. So he passed away on February 14th of 2008. So um, so our, our run here in Vancouver will actually be taking place um, over the course of the run. We will, we, the, the, there will be a performance on the 10th anniversary of Lawrence's death. Um, so the show itself isn't about the murder. It looks at sort of the impact, the, the ripple effect that an act of hate has in a community, that, that people who aren't um, immediately implicated in the murder are still deeply affected. And, um, and I, I think it's sort of a, I'd like to think, like a humanistic reminder of, um, of how acts of hatred um, do have uh, a lasting implication outside of just their moment in time and history and geography. Well, there's a certain relevance to it because I, I don't know about uh, the exact details of the murder, but I've heard that the the kid who shot him, uh, Brandon McInerney, 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 yeah, yeah, was um, also very enamored with um, Third Reich iconography and Nazi memorabilia, and absolutely came from well, both 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 children came from troubled homes. It's it's really a, a very tragic story to state the blatantly obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this was written, being as this was performed in 2011, this was a fairly direct response to the events? Yeah, I mean, so I, I started, right, we did the first workshop production of the show in 2009, and it's just sort of um, serendipitous in a strange way that as the show has evolved, uh, like when we were in rehearsals for that, that workshop production was when the preliminary hearing was happening. They were happening like in real time simultaneously. So I was doing massive rewrites on the show every morning as as more details of the case became um, available. And the same thing happened in 2011. Our, our rehearsal process happened at the exact same time as the first trial. So it wasn't until the 2013 production that I was able to actually uh, rewrite um, the, the ending of the show to reflect um, the, the results of the trial and such. And, I, and, and what I've actually done some rewrites for this production as well. Just uh, because it's it's interesting to look at a murder from from ten years afterwards to, and 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 see how what we know now maybe skews some of what we perceive at the time. And this is a, this was a huge event in the community. Are these ripples still being felt in the community? Like, are there are there vigils for Lawrence King or? I mean, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, uh, like Newsweek magazine, who uh, were sort of one of the first big publications to do a massive report on this, uh, referenced the murder of Lawrence King being the biggest sort of uh, hate-motivated gay bias crime since the murder of Matthew Shepard in 1998. And Matthew Shepard is a name that people really, really recognize. Um, yes. And uh, and so certainly, you know, there there are vigils. Vigils do continue. And, um, and by no means am I the only person who, who's sort of taken um, this case as, as an inspiration to, um, to explore these themes in an artistic way. Um, uh, but, um, I mean, my, my friend Raziel wrote an, an incredible book uh, called When Everything Feels Like the Movies that won Canada Reads a couple years ago. And it's, uh, it really, it's permeated a, a, a lot of people and both queer people and, uh, and the population at large, I would say. And this, in keeping with that, would you say that this play is designed as, perhaps oversimplifying to say, but as a queer play or as a, 
a play for the broader community or or both? Well, and I I mean, as a queer person myself, I never I write about queer themes for. Uh, for broader audiences. I think the queer community, we know the themes and the stories of our community. I think it's important for for all of our, like, I think it's important for all of us as communities to sort of be, um, to really take in a cross-section of narrative rather than, than really depending on these sort of siloed existences of, well, this is a queer show or this is uh, a show about uh, people of color. Like, it, it's it's complicated. It's, it's, it just feels simplistic to to look at it that way, in a way. And uh, this this is a one man show, more or less. It's a mm-hmm. uh, single actor, Connor Wiley, going through these various characters, ranging from a, a small child to um, an elderly person. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like uh, almost one of the like uh, an uh, compressed anthology, would you say? Yeah, I think that that seems fair. Um, it's. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we're really just looking at some of the voices on uh, on the periphery of, of this case. Um, and all of these, um, I mean, I, I, as a writer, I didn't feel comfortable putting words in the mouth of, in the mouths of, of people who we know uh, existed in the community. I, I don't give voice to, to Lawrence or to Brandon or um, who I do give voice to are people who were uh, referred to in some capacity uh, in in sort of the copious research I did, and and I would take a thread of truth and spin it into uh, a fictionalized understanding of who I thought that person might be and how this might have affected the course of their lives. So, to sort yeah. of show these disparate reactions, that's certainly very uh, noble thing. And because of this, because this is also a school shooting. It's mm-hmm. a hate crime, and it is also a school shooting. Do you think that there's a commonality between this court, this discourse, and the discourse around events like Columbine? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think uh, certainly there there's different there's different nuances in each case, and, uh, and and you can sort of look at it through a lot of different lenses. But uh, but I still think you know, like um, what the, the whole gun control argument, like. Don't don't get me started. Don't get any of us started. I think I think a lot of us sort of have have strong feelings about this notion of uh, of the U.S.'s relationship to uh, to weapons. Um, so um, I, I think I mean Col- Columbine, which sort of has become this um, almost myth uh, mythical event. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I mean the word Columbine appears in in this show. I mean, how could it not when when we have a bunch of characters who are looking at uh, at these sort of I I hate to say iconic um, school shootings. So uh, it's it is all interrelated, absolutely. And um, and I mean, my hope is that in a perfect world, this play that I've written that I love dearly would someday be completely archaic and irrelevant. But that's actually that's not where we are yet. By any means. Because this is topical, and would you say it's inherently political? Because Mr. Wiley identifies as a, quote, flag-waving artist of color with socialist politics in his guts. And that's certainly very straightforward in terms of bringing that to the performance, and whether or not that's in the text. Yeah, I mean, I I would say, like, I'm... I I think that the theater that I write uh, inherently has has a politic within it. Um, I think um, my belief for myself is that I write plays in order to have conversations with an audience to sort of grapple with 
question that I don't have an answer to, but I'm curious where they might sit. And and I think um, I think this this play certainly in in the past productions um, it has been it, it's it's been a great uh, beginning point for for conversations uh, between people who are attending the theater together. Uh, and it's really interesting uh, who decides uh, what side they're they're on depending on which voice they're hearing come out of in this case Connor. You want people to walk out of the theater talking? Absolutely. I mean, why why else go? Um, you know, if, if you're just looking for something mindless to, to occupy time, we got tons of that online. Uh, but I think if you're if you're going to head out to uh, to a night at the theater and and surround yourself with a bunch of other people who are all taking in something happening in real time um, and sharing that energy, that uh, that one would hope that it would elicit some kind of um, discussion point, some sort of of community. Um, gathering, so it's something like the people are bearing witness to something, and that something um, creates the need to talk about it. Is what I hope. So, theater is an act of witnessing, in this regard. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think there's something. Um, I, I mean, this is going to sound so bloody West Coast, but um, I mean, I mean, some people find that sort of um, uh, act of witnessing and act of, uh, that moment of, of community in. Uh, in religion and uh, and for me, I, I think theater is that place for me. Like we're we're, we're gathering in order to, to to actually ponder something. And sometimes it's just something that makes us feel really great and laugh our tails off. But sometimes it's something that actually just pierces us and and asks um, asks us hard hitting questions. And I I think that's a beautiful balance. What would you say is your is a play that sort of inspires you in this regard? Like, is there any sort of model that you think of? in theater today, like something that you would say, that's another good example or that's inspiring to you in this regard? Um, certainly I love uh, the work. Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that kind of theater that, that happens in our city. We're really lucky. And certainly right now it's a robust time of year with everything happening at the push festival. Um, yeah, true, but yeah. Brad, I mean, Brad Fraser is a playwright who I adore, like an iconic Canadian playwright. Um, I was just reading one of the, his sort of, most recent play called Kill Me Now, which, as you can imagine, if, if, if anyone's familiar with, with Brad Fraser's work, um, it, it, has a, it has a deliberately pro- provocative title. But, it sounds a little um, confrontational, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just I mean, what I like bit. about his work, though, is that it's, um, even, when it, even at its darkest, it's still deeply funny, because I think life is that balance of, of light and dark, and just finding um, different ratios of those two things uh, throughout the course of a play is, is what keeps me hooked. With, um, with humor, or perhaps you could say the same thing about violence, do you think there's inherent absurdity in either performing it or living it? Oh, what a great question. Um, probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to stop my answer at probably. What, what a delightful answer. Probably. Um, yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, we got Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. That, that's where we're at with absurdity. <laughs> that, that's uh, something... Uh, I'm personally inclined to think of viewing this because there's there's some things that are just very bizarre and I it's always very frightening especially when you see uh, young children act on this because th- th- this was a crime committed by a child against a child and mm. it's certainly very chilling it's chilling to read about because it was a crime of hatred perpetuated by children because that's not a reflection of their agency that, that that's a reflection of the people around them. Oh, absolutely. And, um, and I, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. Well, it's that, you know, 
I guess, part of that, would you say you're trying to highlight the influence of that, like sort of this gestalt that becomes human beings and that inversely can sort of make these things happen? Well, I think there is a certain um, sort of societal accountability that is important to to think about when, when we read these uh, these headlines, and you know, we we go see plays like this one. Of not not that not that it's it's not a finger waving show in any sense, but but I do think that um, that as sort of citizens of the same world, that uh, that we need to sort of recognize that we're all interconnected, and that when something like this happens, um, it's not actually as far away from us as uh, as its geography might initially say like i mean this this case i i don't i don't know these people i've never been to the the town of oxnard california but it it hit me it, it hit me and it sat with me deeply and it has sat with me for 10 years uh and it has it has influenced my the way that i see the relationship between um uh people who who view themselves to be vastly different from one another and how do you actually overcome the the notion of perceived difference um, you know, these, these things happen on our planet and, uh, and they change us. And so sometimes we become activists and sometimes we write a play. And I think uh, both those things are uh, forward moving. I cer- certainly appreciate that effort. I have one last question for you. And this is mm-hmm. all, I always try to end on a trivial question because, you know, I, it prevents me from taking my show too seriously. Um <laughs> The the title, My Funny Valentine, was that after the song? Does the song feature at all in this? Or wh- why did you choose that title? What does that mean to you? Uh, the song did feature in an early, early, early version of the play. Uh, less so now. But I th- there's just something... Um, the absur- Going back to your question about absurdity, the absurdity of uh, even the question, Be My Valentine. Like, what does that actually mean in modern society? When children ask someone to be their Valentine, it's not a tangible thing. It's it's uh, it's it's a false thing, um, and so there's just there is an, an absurd humor to the fact that this, um, in some ways meaningless but also loaded in other contexts gesture, uh, became this uh, violent act that then just snowballed into um, all sorts of change uh, within our understanding of school shootings, of, uh, you know, children who grow up in the presence of uh, neo-Nazi materials. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's hell of a thing complex. to think about. Yeah. Where can we, now, where can we check this out? Where can we get involved? Uh, so the show is happening from February 7th to 18th at when, when the Dance also... Center. Pardon me? Sorry, I, I forgot to say and when, but that's also helpful. Oh, yeah. Uh, February 7th to 18th at the Dance Center uh, at 677 Daisy Street. Um, tickets are available through Theatre Wire, which is uh, the Fringe's box office service. So uh, at theaterwire.com, or you can check out all the information at zztheater.ca. All right. Sounds good. We'll have to be on the lookout for that because that is something definitely sort of, it's, it demands to be seen, really. Yeah. All right. I, thank you. It was <laughs> excellent so to have you on, Dave. Cheers. All the best. Well, that was a hell of a thing. 
Um, we will be right back after a short PSA break uh, with a pre-recorded segment from one of our correspondents regarding uh, some film features and some other correspondent features coming in. Just keep on holding. Just keep on holding on, and uh, we'll be right back with you. George Barrett presents One Love, Vancouver's annual Bob Marley's birthday celebration bash. Don't worry about a thing and head upstairs at the Grandview Legion Hall on Saturday, February 10th for live performances by Canada reggae sensation Steel from Toronto, Boom Daddy Band, Redemption Sound, DJ Bradley, and DJ George Barrett with doors at 8.30. Jamaican food and refreshments are going to be on sale. So get your advance tickets for $25 at High Life Music, Zulu Records, Island Vibes Barber Surrey, or Red Cat Records. This event is lovingly sponsored by Butter King, Co-op Radio, CITR and Discorder, and Wadada Hi-Fi Sound Systems. You're just playing a game. It's more than that. It's about adventure and saving the world and having magic. UBC Theatre and Film presents a high-octane dramatic comedy laden with homicidal fairies, evil succubi, and 90s pop culture. Acclaimed playwright Keek Wynn offers a life-changing journey for the geek within us all. Join Agnes the Ass-Headed on her quest to find and free the lost soul of her deceased sister in She Kills Monsters from January 18th to February 3rd at 7.30pm in the Telus Studio Theatre at the Chan Centre for the Performing Arts. It's a Dungeons and Dragons tale exploring sexual identity, grief, and some hella fierce woman warriors who are about to open up a can of whoop-ass on ya. And we're back out of the ether. And uh, I just got, this is going to be a really short visit from me because I got to introduce a pre-recorded segment by Aaron, one of our correspondents, uh, regarding Lupo the Butcher, which is a film currently playing. It's a classic Vancouver film. And why, why, why would I want to spoil the fun when he can tell you about it himself? Enjoy. <laughs> It's a typical night at the movies when it kicks off with a cursing lunatic accidentally severing his limbs. All of them. Accidentally. I'm Aaron Kenny, and I had the pleasure to attend part three of the image before us, Cult Classics, this Monday at the Cinematheque. The series follows the history of film in British Columbia and continues to showcase some incredible BC filmmaking. Anyway, just as the lights are about to dim and I'm ready to relax into two hours of cinema sorcery, this song plays. Now put that music to a deranged 50-year-old Italian with teeth that have never met a dentist blessing and you have Lapo the Butcher, a short from the same studio that brought you Bambi vs. Godzilla. It's horrific, too short, and highly recommended. While Lepo rockets through three minutes of well-crafted gore, the next film, Big Meat Eater, soos through you like a Chinook wind. Big Meat Eater. In the very near future, the world of horror filmmaking. 
Big Meat Eater, directed by Chris Windsor, tells the story of Bob Sanderson, the local butcher, a particularly campy performance from George Dawson, and his efforts to uphold honest Bequeathlam values. But when the mayor forces him to close his butcher shop, he's faced with a meaty dilemma. He's the butcher, what a zero, yeah, the butcher, not a hero. He's the butcher, 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 Bob. Meanwhile, Jan Wazinski, played by Andrew Gillies, adopts a British accent that deviates only slightly from his Eastern European parents. And he pursues his dream of space travel, the only problem being that he's missing that ever-so-evasive nuclear fuel. I'm on the verge of something big here, something really important, but I'm stuck unless I can get some radioactive fuel. Balonium, my power source. All the while, the inexplicable Abdullah, played by Clarence Big Miller, performs a series of grisly murders, which were gory enough to warrant its initial censorship in Ontario. At any rate, the three collide in wacky ways, and hilarity ensues. And mutations. And aliens. White Rock, B.C., attending producer Lawrence Keene whipped together an amazing team of local artists, many of which continue to work in the industry today. Andrew Gillies, for instance, went on to work on both 12 Monkeys and Orphan Black, and makeup artist Tom McIntosh went on to win not one, but two primetime Emmys for his television work. Many of the original crew were present or had family in attendance at the screening, a remarkable feat considering the 36 years since the film's initial release. So, whether it's the catchy tunes... Or simply watching Big Miller squeeze the grease out of some raw meat. With a budget of 150,000, Big Meat Eater was a ready-made cult classic. A status not unknown to Suzanne Tabati's not entirely different film, Bloodied But Unbowed, which closed the night. From the moment I started playing, I was aware that Vancouver was, had the best punk rock scene. I first knew Canadian punk rock as an export item when it would be sleeping on my floor. Okay, so just about everyone's heard of punk rock, but you might not have heard about Vancouver's punk scene, which quickly became an international sensation. Starting in 1977 and crashing by the early 80s, it was a brief, raw moment of sex, drugs, and rebellion for Canadian music. That's a piece from DOA, one of the leading players in the punk rock stage alongside the subhumans, Pointed Sticks, and many others. Tabata interviewed well over two dozen musicians for the film, constructing a vivid portrait of the scene as a whole. However, what really shines throughout the film is the enormous amount of archival footage, all of which builds an impactful screen presence for these rockers. 
After all, with names like Joe Shithead and Randy Rampage, these were cinematic characters long before the camera started rolling. This wasn't some f***ing sugar-coated Barbie doll, G.I. Joe, and everybody's happy and runs off to Hawaii World. The film outlines these major players as they emerge as international stars, united in a struggle against conformity and its greatest weapon, disco. At the height of their power, the insanity of both the rockers and their audience is coveted on screen. From urinating on the audience to heroin-fueled parties that perpetuated every hour of the day to batty captures an unfathomable energy. And with a track beautifully mixed by Bill Shepard, it sounds freaking amazing. There's something about listening to the rockers 30 years later, with decades of partying taking an obvious toll, which recontextualizes the entire scene. They're simultaneously veterans of a good fight and victims of their youth. Perhaps it's a strange triple bill. Lepo the Butcher, Big Meat Eater, and Bloodied but Unbowed, yet they are united in common strife. As Phil Smith pointed out in his introduction of the films, they portray an image of Vancouver long ago and far away. Whether that is the artificiality of Berquitlam in the 1950s mindset, or the angry city of punk, each film earmarks Vancouver and provides unbridled commentary. These are strange films for strange people, for folks fed up with an appliance-obsessed world, or people who are just tired of hearing that the future is in the future. They are a reflection of a Vancouver that was, but boy do they tear through a Vancouver that is. It is this bizarre meditation that will continue to ratify these films as classics and gives value to their screening three decades since their creation. The Cinematheque continues with the image before us, a history of film in British Columbia. This upcoming Monday, February 5th, part four, will focus on directions and new documentary. So I guess I'll see you there. I'm Aaron Kenny, and it's sure been nice to meet you. Did you know he was that good? I I, I didn't know he was that good. That that was that was some that was an amazing segment there. That that was that was polished. Oh, uh, for the record, I'm not just talking to myself. I am talking to yet another correspondent in the studio, uh, Lua Presidio. Hi everyone. How's it going? How's life? Everything's good. A lot of work, but now I I gotta say because th- so I that. Th- th- I really don't know how to look at that because, like, Joe Keithley's been in this building. Like, we've 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 seen. Some, well, this is the station that hosts Nardwar. I'm sitting in the chair he sat in. So, like, CITR has a weird history with like Vancouver punk, and because like it's the West Coast, that was also I don't know exactly how grunge Vancouver was, but like, come on, like we're this close to Seattle. I mean, I, I got to imagine a little bit of flannel made it across the border, and well, based on most of the guys I see, it stayed. Well, what? Come on, it's 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 comfortable, right? It is. That's that's a good point. But uh, now, if you're in the mood for seeing some 
more mainstream films from around the same era. Actually, we've got an interesting offer going. We have been offered uh, tickets to Flashback Film Fest. We have three pairs of tickets in our office in person, and uh, we're just get- this is sent by Cineplex. It's a Cineplex event that is uh, going through the first couple weeks of February, um, on mostly on the the third, basically the third to the eighth. And you can see some some throwback films, some less than throwback films, but it's it's an initiative that we kind of like because then you I'm I, I I'm a nostalgic guy a little bit. I try not to be because I feel like it's a sinister tendency, and the more I like the more Stranger Things I see, like the more it reminds me of that. But there's some great picks that you can see. You can see uh, View to a Kill, where you have Christopher Walken as a Bond villain and a Bond that's pushing fifty. Back to the Future, which is just awesome. I actually saw that for the first time this holiday season, and just yeah, I, I can't I can't imagine how I didn't see it as a good Canadian because Michael J. Fox, he's a good actor. I feel like he's been dealt a bad hand. But um, oh, you can also see Drunken Master, which is a Jackie Chan classic. Gotta love that. Gotta love that one. I I love Jackie Chan because Jackie Chan, one, the guy's incredibly talented, like musically as well. Yeah, yeah, he's. He, He's a conservatory graduate. Really? Yeah. And he's really, like, he's taken a lot of cues from Buster Keaton as a stuntman. Like, he knows his way around his body. Do you have a favorite Jackie Chan movie? You see a lot of martial arts movies? Not really. I'm a very, like, peace person. Like, I don't, I hate seeing violence. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I, I, I get you there. Like, this is, th- that said, though, like, Jackie Chan movies, like, there's a lot of fighting. There's not a lot of... Like, it's not like a Sonny Chiba movie. Like, I guess having seen a Sonny Chiba movie, I'm kind of biased. But, like, Sonny Chiba, you get to see a guy rip a man's tonsils out. <laughs> like, that's not, a, it's not a martial arts fight. It's just a guy beating another man into a bloody pulp. Like, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not even funny. It, it's just a live action cartoon, which is the, the fun, fun side of which I kind of feel is Jackie Chan. So it's Drunken Master available. Dune. Okay. The original Dune. You ever heard about that? No. So Dune in the 80s is a movie made from a book about the readable density of Kevlar uh, made by the guy who would direct who would direct Blue Velvet, Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, and had basically, let's just say David Lynch, weird dude, starring, well, actually, the guy from Blue Velvet, uh, Virginia Madsen, Francesca Annis, and honestly, I know. Uh, oh, yeah, and music by Toto. I always any of these ringing a bell? No, just Back to the Future and the Jackie Chan one. It's a Dune is an insane. Oh, Sting's in it too. Oh, okay. You get to see young Sting in a plastic speedo. There's no reason okay, for that's it. That's a great. <laughs> yeah, it's. That's just like, oh, okay, I need to see the movie. There's no reason for it. There, there's no context at all. You just get at a point in the movie. You get Sting walking out of a steam bath wearing a blue plastic speedo. Like, just okay, that's a thing that happens. Carry on. Oh, and then there's Gremlins, which is just, just how do you, Gremlins? That's a movie everyone has a soft spot for. I feel like it's hard to have a hard spot for Gremlins. That is not good phrasing. No, it's really not. No. Anyway, we also have Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz is great. Hot Fuzz is great. Um, and you know that that's also definitely try to get as much viewing of Edgar Wright projects as he can because, you know, that man finally had a financial success with Baby Driver and he deserved one well before that. So whatever keeps him going. And much love, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is on for there. That is a great movie. It's hilarious. That it is. I love that movie. It's 
that is I I remember laughing so hard during the Black Knight uh, sketch first time I saw that that I was I was like crying and disoriented and like short of breath, which like th- those are side effects to bad pharmaceuticals, not like like comedy and like uh, Monty Python too. Just they're they're the Beatles of comedy, they really are. Yeah, I think. And it's also a very um, specific type of humor. So it's like, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But, like, it's a humor that everyone should get. Um, I, I just love it. <laughs> it's The fact that it's still funny tells you something about its staying power because comedy usually is very topical. Like, it's it's one of the, it's one of the hardest things to do right. But God love them. Like, they keep on keeping on. And uh, all but all but everyone but Graham Chapman's still alive. All of them except Graham Chapman, um, which is really – he died of um, – he had of cancer, I think, in the late nineties. He was he he had roughest time of it though. I think he he was I think he was an alcoholic. But there's I don't I that well now that was depressing. Great, well, it's it's like um and like being Canadian too. Their influence on the kids in the hall, like maybe that that sounds really minor, but I really like the kids in the hall, and like I I get the feeling that if the kids in the hall were able to make another movie after Brain Candy. They, they would have gotten to the sort of point like Monty Python where they really could make a movie out of those sketches. Because, like, like Holy Grail is a great movie. It's made from sketches. There's, there's no... The, the ending is just... Well, actually, watch the movie. There's also Raising Arizona. It's a Coen Brothers movie. Nick Cage, Holly Hunter, John Goodman, of course. Uh, Francis McDormand, of course. You know, just great cast, weird plot. Uh... It's it's a weird sort of screwball comedy. Like, Raising Arizona is a movie that is zany to the point where either you can't stand it or you love it. It is really, like, Monty Python is a movie made of sketches. Raising Arizona feels like one long sketch that keeps changing. Sort of. Interesting. Like, there's there's callbacks. Like, like that, that's what the callbacks in it feel like. Um, oh, uh... Oh, uh, Shaun of the Dead, too. So, some more Edgar Wright stuff there. I actually, so zombies creep, zombies, I've had this weird thing about, I, I just can't see them straight, you know? I mean, I love how zombies are, they always come back eventually, like, in horror movies. Um, like, so we'll have phases, like, we had It being reproduced, so, like, we have a few clown movies. And then we have zombies every time there's, like, a new disease or a new epidemic. And, like, people's fears is just, oh, like the zombie movie. I just find well, it fascinating. You know what? I, so I saw Boo a Medea Halloween. I don't know why I did, but there's a subplot in there about, you know that killer clown trend yeah. that sort of happened? Like, there's a subplot in there about that. Don't ask me to make any sense of it because I don't know how it makes sense. And... It sort of seems like the clown, pe- basically Pennywise crossed with a zombie movie, and I'm like, someone's got to have made that. Like, like horror movies, like if you can think about it, someone's either doing it or has done it, because because they're easy to do, right? Uh, Terminator Two: Judgment Day is also available. Uh, Big Lebowski, yes. Enough said. I I I don't have much more to say about the Terminator, honestly. Um, it's, it's yeah, they're all right. Iron Giant, oh man. That's that movie's got a lot of heart. It's a very cute movie. Like, I want to watch it again and again. That's that's my friend Eric's favorite movie, and it's just it it's a beautiful movie. It really is. It's it, I I wouldn't say that about a lot of things. 
The Terminator 2. Not not the Terminator 2. I mean, the, the original Terminator is also available. Why not, right? Uh, World's End. So they got the full Edgar Wright panel. And, oh yeah, War Games. That, that seemed just like an addition on the end of it. War Games is one of those things like hackers that's hilarious to watch in the age of digital literacy. Like, hackers is like, yes, we can in fact hack into a top secret company server using a MacBook. Using like the equivalent of something that would have a tablet's computing power. Yes. And now we're living in a point, oh wait, we can actually do that. Yeah. Well, that comes around. Um, if you want to see any of these, uh, feel free to call in during our PSA break, which is happening in approximately, uh, 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 six seconds, uh, and let us know which of them you'd want to see and why we'll have you on the air. And then after that, Lua, you're going to talk to us about MOA arts and culture. We're going to have a brief seek into an interview, a review of top dog underdog and give a shout out to songbird North to close the show. All right. Hang on, sugar. We're going to the PSAs. That, that was to me. I don't know why I did that. The Canadian Foundation for Cross-Cultural Dialogue proudly introduces its new project, Baldwin and La Fontaine, towards responsible government. With your family, friends, and classmates, learn more about the role played by those important figures in shaping Canadian government as we know it today. Visit baldwinlafontaine.ca to discover clips, documentaries, and a teaching guide. Enter the National Web Contest for a chance to win a trip for two to Toronto or a post-secondary scholarship. There's nothing good about winter. The days are shorter, the sun isn't as sunny, and it's freaking cold. Um... Yeah, but there's also the annual winter issue of Disorder. Pick up your copy of Disorder, that magazine that's salty enough to melt the iciest of seasonal affective disorders from CITR, at one of our over 100 distribution locations. To share some fireside cheer with Kathleen Hepburn, a local independent director, enjoy a cup of metaphorical cocoa with BB over their first full album release, make some non-denominational sugar cookies at Chinatown's Pollyanna Library with Jonathan Q, take a sleigh ride through CITR's seasonal special listening guide, and of course, enjoy reviews of local shows and new releases. And an extra special holiday shout-out to our advertisers, Tambor Concerts, The Rickshaw Theatre, The Rio Theatre, The Cinematheque, and Mint Records. Hmm, I guess winter's not that bad. You know, I, I, I personally like winter. I like the cold a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'm also like an Ontarian, so our winters tend to have more snow, and I do get how the rain wears on people. No, I can't stand the cold. Like, this much rain is killing me. Um, I, if I could see the sun every single day of my life, I would. <laughs> Fair enough. I get that. It's an, like, I, I get the, there's a whole sad thing, too, the seasonal affective disorder thing. For me, it kind of goes the other way, because I feel like, I find rain really relaxing, the sound of it. There's a weird thing. There's an episode of MASH. where You ever watch MASH? No. There's, it's a great show. One character loses his sight one episode, and he talks about how his senses are different, and he describes the sound of rain as sounding like a frying steak. It's kind of it beautiful. Is, especially when it's on metal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really kind of a lovely observation. Now, speaking of lovely observations, MOA Arts and Culture. What are we looking at? So this year they had the third annual Art and Culture Night at MOA. It was hosted by the Calendar and Vibe in TVBC. 
It happened on the 24th. Um, and it was just a really great night. It was super fun. They had several attractions. UBC Improv was there. UBC Slam Poetry was there. And they had um, also dancers, indigenous dancers and uh, singers. Um, and the, to me, the best part is that all of them were either UBC alumni or students. And so, yes, we all hear that UBC has so many talented people and there are so many people doing so much all the time, but you never actually get to see them that often. And to finally go to a place where it's just concentrated um, UBC students and alumni doing these incredible stuff that these incredible things that they are doing some of them professionally and some of them are just trying it out um, it's just really cool and it really makes me think maybe I can do that too um, and that's the awesome thing about these clubs right like it's that they'll take you and they'll, they will teach you the ropes like Blank Vinyl Project, Rappers Without Borders, like on the musical side of it, for the theatrical side of it, Players, MTT. They're really great organizations. I always like to see them putting themselves out there because I think that's, like, it's great to have a hobby, but also it's a hobby that becomes a discipline, and that's great stuff. Hell, even radio. <laughs> <laughs> yep, there's the villain laugh again. Was there any sort of standout for you, like any specific thing that's like, wow, I have to learn how to play the banjo? Or, wow, how does that person not shatter their spine doing that? Well, the first um, the first person to come on, the first two, actually, they, um, it was two indigenous dancers. Well, they had indigenous heritage, Nigel Granier and, and Rebecca Baker. And I was just fascinated because uh, Nigel is, is a grass dancer, and his clothing... Um, with the movement, whenever he moved, the clothing went with him, and it. I was just hypnotized by the movement. Everything just felt like it. It felt it was everything was falling into place. Although he was moving very very fast, I just wanted to look at him dance for hours and hours. And also, Sophia Tsunuresh, she is a student here. And she actually just did an EP now. It's called Tenuresh as well. Really? Um, and her voice, the moment she started singing, I just wanted to cry because it was so beautiful. Um, her, it, she does jazz with R&B, and it's a very, very tranquil vibe, um, very, very chill. It's the kind of thing that you want to put on a rainy day and just listen to. Just and sort of relax. Very sort of that bass that it feels like a heartbeat, you yeah. know, that sort of thing. And uh, the voice is very high-pitched as well, and it's, so it's the perfect combination. That's great. That's good stuff. And with that, MOA actually has an event tomorrow. They have, Which I'm going to. I am also going to that. It's Untamed, right? And the, all I know about it is that there's an indigenous burlesque night. And this is the thing about burlesque. I've seen burlesque and... Because you, do you do burlesque? Yeah. <laughs> I, it's my favorite type of dance. Okay. Tell um, us about it. So burlesque is, it, burlesque is very interesting because, yes, it is a sensual dance, but it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be sexy all the time. Some burlesque dancers, they will take funny into it. I've seen a burlesque performance um, where the woman came out dressed as a burrito and she would, 
uh, she was like wrapped in the a tortilla. Um, yes, it was very an very actual close. tortilla, or no, was no, this no, a prop? Like because a ordering that tortilla was is <laughs> no, gonna be weird. Like you got you got like, you got like ten of them for rehearsals. Like I need a human sized tortilla. Why? We're doing a burlesque show. The baker like okay, just yeah, fine. No. Th- th- there's nothing that's going to add more context to that. No, um, but it was actually like a prop, and she was dressed in um, like a very tight. As if she was like tomatoes and like salad and that kind of stuff in the burrito. It was a great performance. And it's funny because like each individual performer adds their touch to burlesque. So burlesque is a very, very individual thing. And some people will take it all out and do decavantees on inside a champagne um, glass. And some people will do a very funny decavantees is a big name. Yeah, I've, I've... burlesque. Um, and so sometimes you fall in love with an artist, sometimes you fall in, bur- in love with burlesque, and I fell in love with burlesque, and if I could, that is absolutely my favorite type of dance. Because you're a dancer, right? Yeah. Like, and and ha- you've studied a lot of different kinds of dance, so that's quite a something as a distinguishing feature there. Uh, yeah, um, I've studied a lot. I've been dancing my entire life, basically. And I like burlesque because it takes elements of every other dance, and it brings it together to really show that the dancer has an individuality and it's not only something not only performing movements for the sake of being seen they're showing you who they are and that, that's quite something to say about it and would you say that a lot of the sort of trajectory of burlesque because it originally did start as this erotic but also satirical medium does it retain that this sort um, of satirical touch to it some people do um, some people, I have seen burlesque performances that have been very political uh, in very strange ways. You see, like, when it's non-conventional, if you're not prepared to be like, oh, I'm going to be interested in this, most people will be like, uh, what just happened here? Um, and I'm the kind of person that looks at it and goes, wow, this is a really interesting way to think about how dance goes on, how dance happens. Huh. That's interesting. That's 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 a that's a good way to look at it. I never thought about that, so I'm gonna go to this event tomorrow, and I guess with a fresh set of eyes. Thank you for that. And you know, and this is there's no way to make this segue pretty easily easily, but I saw Top Dog Underdog last week. Exactly right, right. It's it's yeah, it, it's it. like a burlesque show. It's it's not at all like a burlesque show, really. Or is it? It's it's is is there a correlation I could make there? Actually, no, no, better not, better not to try. Uh, what it was a lot like, though, was um, uh, so last semester we reviewed a show called The Lonesome West, which I loved. It was in my top three of the year. Very good show by an Irish playwright named Martin McDonough. And Top Dog Underdog is uh, very similar to The Lonesome West in that it is two brothers sharing a very crappy apartment. Uh, at the fringe of violence. There is no other two characters, by the way. Like there in in the Lonesome West, there's Father, there's Father Walsh. <laughs> uh, and uh Gurleen, who's their schoolgirl moonshiner. Great thing to have that in a play. Um, but in Top Dog Underdog is just two brothers named Lincoln and Booth. Yep. Yep. And that they they really ride on that for the show. This is this was a really good show. And 
it's a performance heavy show because the so the two parts Michael Blake who is Lincoln who I actually saw in the summer at Stratford in in Tartuffe uh, this is much better played in Tartuffe I want to say that Tartuffe is kind of annoying uh, and Luke Roderick who plays Booth they have this really good chemistry this really good repartee and so this this shows this by the way this shows at the Gold Corp so this is a an arts club release which means they've got some the the production quality on this is very interesting like they've got this uh, set that looks like a slanted cross section of the apartment you're in they're in and you can see like it's not a good apartment like it is a studio apartment with no kitchen no bathroom like and it's <laughs> they're living in poverty there's a bathroom down the hall oh, okay for for that because i was gonna say it's just a room then. it is a room it's a room with a closet in it and a bed and an armchair and like lincoln lives with booth because his wife threw him out uh, and he sleeps in the armchair, and his day job is impersonating Abraham Lincoln in an arcade game where you can shoot Abe Lincoln playing John Wilkes Booth. That comes back around. Um, and not to uh, spoil anything, but the historical context hangs heavy over this. And Booth is his younger brother, and Booth is, uh, he's a hustler, basically. Not in the gay prostitute sense, in like the sort of Bobby Riggsian hood sense. Like, hood is in like, a hoodlum sort of this is not getting better but he wants to his aim is to hustle three card monty which lincoln was really good at at one point and that is a recurrent theme as is their relationship with their parents who both left them and it builds to an emotive climax the lonesome west is a comedic play this is a drama with comedy in it the Lonesome West is an extremely dark comedy with occasional moments of drama, so it's almost the exact reverse proportions of it. And I want to say this. If you like Kendrick Lamar, you're going to get a kick out of this because there's two Kendrick songs on it. And if you're like me and you really like Muddy Waters, there's a song of Muddy Waters on this. And there's like there's some great blues songs on it. There's some Kendrick. Like there's, I just want to make love to you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what you get from the blues there. Yeah. Uh, my DJ voice, my very bluesy DJ voice. This is Howlin' Wolf coming at ya across the radio waves. I don't know if Howlin' Wolf ever, if there's any recordings of Howlin' Wolf doing radio, but I, I just got to imagine that'd be an interesting experience because that voice, like, I don't know how much he put it on, but that man did a lot of living. There's that comparison, though, with, like, Lincoln uh, uh, wears, like, is more old school like he's got more old school look to him he plays guitar he sings the blues whereas like uh booth wears like uh an a shirt and a hoodie a lot like he's like he's hip-hop lincoln's blues sort of if you want to go on that comparison and these dualities exist and sort of intertwine throughout the play it's interesting i'd recommend checking it out the play runs uh for a little while longer uh, it's gotten some pretty good reviews too like you'll, you'll be able to See, it runs until February 11th, so you got you got another good week and a half yet to check it out. And uh, oh yeah, it's by by Susan Laurie Parks was the the playwright. Um, good job on the writing of it. And before we go, there's there's one more thing we've got to shout out, which is uh, Songbird North. And Songbird North is a uh, well, well, what do you think it sounds like, really? It, it, it's uh, it's a songwriters event. I was I was gonna say, does it sound like a collection? Does it sound like some sort of aviary outing? No, okay, that didn't work. Uh, but they've got uh, it basically collects these songwriters from across 
uh, Canada. You've it's organized by Shari Ulrich, 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 um, and it takes place at. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, it. Uh, it's. Uh, oh, sorry. Anyway, failing me here a little bit. And, oh, Chris Martin! Is he the dude from Coldplay? Uh, he has heard that one so many times in his life, hasn't he? That's that's the thing. So the, there is a singer songwriter here from Edmonton named Chris Martin, which, you know, I, I, I give him I give him credit. It's at it's at the the Roundhouse. That's it, the Roundhouse Community Arts and Recreation Center. They had uh, aren't aren't in the plenty rhythm last year, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's like it's it's a good venue, uh, and that is. Uh, that's coming out fairly soon. I believe that's on the seventh. Uh, uh, and uh, if you, if you're interested in songwriting, check them out. Check it out. Like it is, it is this very because songwriting is a very personality heavy sort of thing. You got to trade on that to a degree, so you do get it, these sort of interesting events that come around for that. Although, like, I I honestly don't know uh, where singer songwriters are at now. Like the golden age of singer songwriters would be what? Would you say the seventies? around that um probably i'd say actually go before that 70s through the I'd night i'd say 60s and like 70s because i'm thinking like in the 70s like the solo acts like don, well don henley was big in the 80s like after after the eagles like um and i mean some of them are still going like tom waits leonard cohen would be a singer songwriter warren zevon who was the guy who did walking in memphis he was like the last one walking to memphis Walking in Mark Cohn. Mark Cohn. Yeah. Uh Tom Petty, too. May he rest in peace. You never know how much you miss Tom Petty until he's gone. Yes. Yes. That's a very shallow insight, but there you go. <sighs> do you have a favorite singer songwriter? Sort of and do you like that genre of music? I'm a person that really has like phases. Right now I'm in a very like jazz I get and you. blues phases face and like I really I listen a lot to Mayo she's she has an amazing voice and an incredible range as well um she's a British singer I just love her hmm, good stuff I guess I, I like again I gotta say with the blues you'd probably like Top Dog Underdog because there's some again there's some great I think John Lee Hooker's even on the score to it that guy didn't sing so much as talk over blues music but i'm fairly sure that nobody corrected him because john lee hooker made many songs about shooting people various ways and i have relative and i i've seen i've seen clips of the guy performing he does not seem like someone you want to screw with like john you're not quite hitting that i'm warn you i'm bad like jesse james well okay i won't ask you to hang a picture john but but no you're not hearing me. I'm strapped. Okay, John, that's great. That's great. You're perfectly on pitch. That's good. That's good. Um, good. I, I'm just gonna go. Uh, uh, listen over there. Uh, behind behind the wall. Behind the wall. Uh, out outside of range. That that good. That good. That's all right. I'm gonna do a number here called one bourbon, one scotch. One beer. Sounds like a great idea, John. Sounds like a great idea. You just chill out, chill out, relax, and maybe give me the gun. I'm not going to do that. Okay, I'm going to be over here. This sketch was brought to you by Obscure's Blues Jokes Incorporated. They're based out of, uh, I think they're based out of Memphis. Uh, they're, they're great. They're great guys. Great guys. 
kind of great. In fact, if I just, I wonder if I just keep doing this, I'll eventually end up like just with a comedy show or something. They just, how do we get him to stop? I don't know. Syndicate him. I don't know. So it goes. If anything, any other parting remarks? Yeah, we we covered Moa. We're looking for. We're definitely looking forward to that tomorrow. Um, tomorrow, actually, I'm reading on it, and it's really interesting what they're doing because they all they all have um, indigenous heritage, um, and so they're taking back this stigmatization that exists, and bring saying like yes. Indigenous women can be sexy, but it's on our terms. And I find that just fascinating. That's great stuff. That's certainly, like, definitely in the discourse about sexuality, that's a pretty relevant point to make. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this has been the Arts Report on CITR 11.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm Jake Clark. I'm Lula. And it was great to have you. Cheers. Do you have any awareness of what's been happening with newspapers in the last no, 10 years? Not at all. I mean, truth is, I don't even get them anymore. I just read the news on my phone. It's so much better, and it's free. Yeah, that makes sense. The future of news media is in your hands. If you're interested in independent journalism and current affairs, CITR's News Collective is for you. Help pound down stories about diverse and underrepresented issues in the Lower Mainland for Democracy Watch, airing every Thursday at 5 p.m. Email volunteer at citr.ca to get involved.